in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elishib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked to leave the king, and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw the household of furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave the orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah the priest, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers." Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. so you can get reception. Um, I know what happened this morning. You all heard that we were going to talk about sin, and a bunch of you showed up and brought your friends. Uh, I'm positive that's what happened. Uh, Believe it or not, I was so sick this weekend uh, that I was very tempted to just scrap uh, part of our series for this week and just throw on a video of something that would be more applicable and I guess Jesus has other, uh, he has other plans. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I don't know if we'll be saying that in 55 minutes from now. Um, but I do trust that Jesus has brought you here for a particular reason. If you're new, this is definitely not to scare you, but there will be some scary parts in all of this. Uh, so welcome to Urban Grace. It is the uh, Insensitive to Visitors Sunday. Uh, Welcome to what we're doing here. A couple of announcements that I'll make. Uh, One is that coming up, for those of you who are interested, I don't think it's uh, live yet on the website. Our voting is not, it's not yet. 
not yet fully live. Uh, we'll be, though. We'll be live as soon as possible because our new series is on Proverbs. And Proverbs is a book that actually is probably best uh, dealt with in terms of themes. Not necessarily in terms of chapters, but in terms of themes. And the problem is, is that we have nine Sundays and about 14 or 15 themes to deal with. And so what I've done is I've left it up to the Holy Spirit through you. You're going to decide where we're at in terms of uh, which themes we're going to. So check the website out very soon. Uh, as soon as we have it, it'll be on the Twitter feed, on the Facebook page, letting you know all of that stuff. Uh, because we want to get some votes in uh, to find out exactly what you're interested in finding out. There's lots of different topics things that deal with money. I'm I'm just basically assuming we're going to be talking about sex because that's probably going to be the number one button clicked, of course, right? Because we have a very young church and that's what happens with young churches is the series on sex really grows the church. Um, Not literally, but sometimes (laughs) literally. Uh, actually, we have a lot of babies in our church, and we haven't yet done a series on sex, so I just can't imagine what we will have once we have a series on sex. Uh, but that's, that's coming up. Um, the second announcement is actually just that we're going to be making a big announcement. So just want you to keep your... I, I, I don't know where the phrase eyes peeled came from. Like, whoever has peeled their eyes for anything. Uh, but keep your eyes and your ears uh, attentive, I guess to a a little bit of a a thing we're going to do as a church. We've talked a lot about loving the city. We've talked a lot about being here in the city deliberately, very specifically. We've even tried to nail that down geographically and made some calls to you to move into the city for those of you who can. And one of the ways that we want to promote this is simply by helping you give some handles on how to get to know your city. So we're going to do a big, we're going to call it not a project, but a challenge within our church of how to love the city more that's all i'm going to say it's going to be a challenge Uh, i will say though it involves field notes so for those of you who know about field notes um that's a cool and exciting thing for those of you who don't you are officially not a hipster so you're you're all good anyways but there's going to be other ways in which you can uh, get involved in that it's for everyone and really what it is 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 just something that we thought would be really helpful Um, Because you can't really love a city that you don't know, just like you can't love people that you don't know. And so how do you how do you love people that you don't know? Well, first of all, you get to know them. So this is kind of the way in which uh, we're trying to help you to get to know the city. So pay attention to what's going on there. Okay, and now for our text this morning. Uh, Again, it's a I think it's a very heavy text. Um, But it's a story that I think is very, very good for us. And uh, let's just pray that Jesus gives to us his Holy Spirit and reveals to us uh, what we can learn from his story today. If you'd pray with me. Jesus, thank you for bringing people here today. Um, Honestly, Jesus, it's remarkable what you're doing in this city. It's remarkable that you're bringing people into a theater on a rainy day to hear about sin. I know that only one reason could be given for that and is you are at work you are at work drawing hearts you are at work drawing people you are at work building relationships jesus there's no other explanation for this jesus and so what i want to ask is you just continue to do what you're already doing you don't even have to do anything more than what you're doing just continue please 
doing what you're doing and, and warm our hearts toward you and harden our hearts towards sin today, Jesus. Would you help bring conviction and courage to our hearts? Would you do that, Jesus, because it's for your glory and for your kingdom? Amen. Um, just to be really honest, if you know me, I wear my emotions on my sleeve or in my tears. Um, but it's pretty hard to hide what's going on in my life from you, so I'll just be honest. It's been a tough week emotionally for me because of this text and just because of some of the things that surrounding the text. I am absolutely amazed that the book of Nehemiah has not been just a scriptural book that's good for us to go through and is filled full of principles for us. It really, in many ways, feels autobiographical to our story. It feels like this is our story. So let me just uh, get into it by bringing you up to speed in what we're, we've called Magna Civitas. That's a Latin phrase because I'm kind of a nerd. And in Bible college, I had this little book of Latin phrases and I loved them. I thought it was super cool. Turns out I was like 20 years ahead of my time. I would have made a great hipster in the 90s. We weren't called hipsters in the 90s. We were called nerds. Um, but Magna Civitas simply means a great city. Great city. And really, that's what this book of Nehemiah is all about. It's, it's, it's a story of, of a man and, and, and the people of God who are called to rebuild God's city into a great city. And there's more to it than simply the rebuilding of the walls. That's why halfway through the book they finish the wall, but they don't finish the work. And in fact, we're, we're at this chapter 13, we enter into some, this is the last part of the book. Obviously, if you can read spaces in your Bible. Um, but it's, it's a very important part because there's still some stuff to do. And I think we learn so well. I'm, I'm reading a book called Wired for Story, and it's amazing how much we talk about this. But we can hear about other things, but it's amazing what stories do to cement ideas in our hearts and our heads, isn't it? Very few of us can remember Every sermon that we've ever heard, but most of us can remember the movies that we've watched because they're designed to be a story. In fact, if you see a movie a couple of times, it's likely you can remember uh, things from that story, little images like me and my, my little girls, we're watching Fantastic Mr. Fox on Netflix. Anyone seen Fantastic? It's a great little flick. And uh, while I was sick and I, could, I was barely conscious, my little four-year-old was, was running around and going, who, how, what now? And I was like, where did that come from? It was this little phrase from Fantastic Mr. Fox, and she said it in such a cute way. I told her to keep repeating it. But it's amazing how the little stories, they stick in your brain. And that's what Leslie said to me. She said, it's amazing your children have your ability to remember absolutely useless information perfectly. But because we're wired for story, that's why. We're wired for story. And I'm hoping that the book of Nehemiah doesn't become just a bunch of principles that you remember, but it's a story that sticks in your heart. And so I want to, I've done this before. Usually preachers are told, you know, go through the text, break it down, give point by point. That's the best way to do it. I think sometimes we need to take a break from that, even though that's not a bad way to preach. I'm just going to tell you the story of the text, and then I'm going to pull out 
three things, and then one of those things has some sub-points in it. But I'm just going to tell you the story of what's going on in Nehemiah. We're in the last phase of Nehemiah's work. The, the story of chapter 13 uh, begins with a considerable amount of, uh, considerable amount of time having been passed. Uh, from what we can gather from the text, about 12 years, somewhere in there. Uh, somewhere in this time period, Nehemiah has returned to his job in Persia as the cupbearer to the king. Now, see, that's how the story starts. He's, the story starts with Nehemiah leaving Persia, the capital city in Persia, and he leaves that. He's got a great, trustworthy job. He's got, like, basically assistant to the mayor. He's the cupbearer to the king. It's not the kind of job you walk away from. In fact, they say that Nehemiah was likely a eunuch. Do you know what a eunuch is? No one wants to admit this. If you don't know what a eunuch is, ask someone who just raised their hand, because I'm not going to do it here. But let's just say it involves genitals. Okay? That's how serious this job was. He was willing to deal externally with something on his body in order to have this job. Okay? So this is a good job. This is a job worth having, well-paying, very secure. And he leaves it. To come and rebuild the city. He leaves it because I believe he actually had the literal heart of Jesus brought on upon him by the Holy Spirit of God. For some reason, God decided through his spirit, I am going to use Nehemiah and I'm going to break his heart for this city. And this man is then going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to do something that no one has yet been able to do in 141 years. Now, interestingly enough, once Nehemiah's work is done, he goes back to his old job. How many of you would be able to have like a two-year hiatus from your job and then step right back in? Some of you would. But that's a pretty good, secure job, isn't it? And it's 12 years later. We kind of need to know that a little bit. But the text really should start a couple of verses earlier from chapter, chapter 13 because they set up what's really happening in chapter 13. We have people following through with everything that they have done so far. So we have in the last part of chapter 12, we have the singers doing their job. We have the bands who are doing their show, they're performing shows. And they have daily portions. That means they're collecting tithes for these people. And in those, excuse me, in those days, that's how it worked. You didn't, you know, uh, bring your money to a show and pass around the plate. You collected tithes beforehand that they could live off of, and you'd actually store them. They actually had storage facilities on site. So instead of, you know, uh, automatic withdrawal from the temple. Treasury, you just had storehouses where those in need, they could just draw from, from that particular area. And they were doing this well in chapter 12. And they gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So you have Israel at the time, Jerusalem at the time, they're correctly obeying God at this point. They're following through with their covenant. That covenant is found in chapter 10. 
the people who sealed the covenant. You see all of those people. This is in, in 1028. It says right there, the obligations of the covenant. This is the free will covenant that the people decided they would sign. And they actually put their names in scripture that they would sign saying, we will obey this. So you get to chapter 13, and there are the people, again, they're reading these things, and this is exactly what happens. Is we he, when people are correctly obeying God, they're opening Scripture, they're telling the people what Scripture says, and they open the book. And on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. They couldn't go into worship. Now, this sounds really racist to us, doesn't it? Sounds like, good gracious, that you can't have anyone besides a Hebrew go and worship the assembly of God. Now, God had good reasons for this. This is really fascinating because uh, this wasn't an isolated incident. God just didn't decide, like, okay, these Moab, Moab and Ammon, these two guys who have these two tribes that develop into these two countries, this isn't, I don't like these guys. These were people, Ammon, here's what Ammon did. As God brought his people into the land, God was doing something to the people, and they met up with the people of Ammon, and they were unhelpful to Israel. They refused to help them. And so Israel is, is at that time just kind of forming, and they're starving, and they need supplies. And the people of Ammon say, I think I'm getting that right. The people of Ammon say, no, not going to do it. Not going to help. The people of Moab actually put up barriers for Israel. So this is the opposite. So the people of Ammon don't do anything for God's people. The people of Moab do everything against God's people. And you know what God said? He cursed them and he said, you will never be part of my group of people. And so they read this, and they realized in their worship, we have some ancestors here. Now, can you imagine what that would be like in today's terms? Like if we said, okay, all of those from Saskatchewan, you're not really allowed to worship with us today. So if you could kindly raise your hand. Um, remember what Josh said about the Bible. We're going to ask you to return your Bible, actually. Um, you're going to have to find your own. Everyone from Alberta can stay. That would seem really weird for us. But <laughs> I'm from Saskatchewan, so I can say that, right? Maybe. But that's exactly what this scripture says. They did, not, they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. And yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. So God used this, but he said these people will not be allowed to be in the worship, worshiping community of the people of God. They discovered this. They hear the word of God. They do something about it. It's interesting that that's their attitude toward listening to the Word of God and how different that is for us sometimes because we're not really like this, are we? We're usually like, well, I will apply what I've heard on Sunday or I will apply what I learn in my city group at a time that's convenient for me. I won't do it immediately because it's not really convenient right now, to be honest. I will wait until the time passes 
I know God's speaking to me about this, that I should give this up, but I'm just going to finish my subscription to it and let that run out. And you see these people that are listening to the Word of God and they're doing something immediately, as soon as. That's not there by accident, the text. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Would have been awkward, but they did it. They knew it was important. Now, some commentators have actually grouped 13, 1 to 3 with the previous passage because really it kind of in some ways belongs there because that sets up the story. Now we get into kind of present day. And remember, this is from Nehemiah's journal. Okay, we're not actually sure who totally compiled it. It's not really, it doesn't make a difference as to whether it's scripture or not. It is scripture in its final form. That's what we believe here. So however it came together, however it it was gathered and compiled, that's not really of great consequence. But I think in some ways it would have been helpful if it was gathered kind of and separated for us. But as you study it, you just see that pretty clearly. There's something that happens in verse 4 there. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of her God and who was related to Tobiah. So now Nehemiah is, is getting into some of the issues that he's going to have to deal with. And apparently Nehemiah had to ask the king again, can I go back and do a situation report on where my home city is at? Can I do that? King says again, yes, 12 years later. That's an interesting thing that God does, isn't it? that he actually brings favor upon a king who serves a completely different God. And he he warms the heart of that king towards Nehemiah, probably because Nehemiah had earned so much respect with the king. He knew that Nehemiah was not trying to revolt against what he was called to as a missionary in Persia, but really to help develop this. Because honestly, no one seemed to have the courage in Jerusalem at the time to do it. And that's what it required. I mean, if you read the entire book of Nehemiah, what you will see consistently over and over again is opposition. Lots of times just from the inside. And so Nehemiah has gone back. He asked the king, can I go back and check things out? He says the priest isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. Eliashib Uh, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. So there were living quarters inside kind of the temple facility for priests. See, that's the way it worked. It was kind of like we would call it a manse today. They used to have them. They don't have them anymore. used to be even back way, way back in the day, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, when you took on a pastorate of some kind, especially in in rural parts of the country, you would often get uh, a parsonage or a manse. You would get a place to live right beside the church. Then they discovered how awkward that could be at times um, and how it made it almost too accessible uh, to people. And so kind of churches have gone away from that. But the idea wasn't to, to creep people out or to put a lot of pressure on pastors, the idea was simply to make the living space a, not a big burden for the pastor. Okay, so that's the idea behind it. There, there's someone in charge of like keeping up the, the condominium complex within the temple that could allow these priests to eat and to live and to serve God because that's how it worked. And what was this high priest doing? It's very interesting. 
he decides to take one of these little condo places that's actually supposed to be a pantry for food, and he turns it into a 700-square-foot apartment for the enemy who had given Nehemiah grief for so many months as he's rebuilding the wall. This is remarkable. Can you imagine? You're Nehemiah. You have literally come into Jerusalem, and you've faced opposition. That's who Tobiah was. He, he comes up again and again and again and again in Nehemiah because he's, he's someone on the inside that's giving Nehemiah all kinds of opposition on the outside. We're not sure this guy's totally Jewish or totally not Jewish. We just know he's trying to please two people. And so what he does is he lets them live there. Which meant one of two things. He let someone who was a foreigner, which is a breaking of the covenant already, come and live inside the temple. And he's not collecting tithes anymore because that's where the tithes would have been. So that meant two things. That's why you see the next part of the text says, wait wait a second, Nehemiah says in verse 10, I found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his field. They had to take out a second job just to be a priest. That is not God's design in those days. I was bivocational. That works. I think for a season you have all seen what difference it can make Uh, having a pastoral leader give full attention to the church. And I'm grateful for that. But that's not the way it worked. In fact, God said, you don't have a job, you don't have land. So when Israel first took over the land, God said, every tribe will get land except the Levites, because I don't want the Levites to have land. I don't want them to have the responsibility of being landlords. I don't want them to to take the responsibility of having to earn money. You earn money for them so that they can be totally focused in on bringing my presence to the community. Nehemiah is so mad that he does something that I think is very remarkable. Okay, some of us have heard sermons about don't be angry. Well, you're going to have a tough time with Nehemiah if you've heard that. The Bible actually says, Be angry and don't sin, but it doesn't say don't be angry. Because sometimes anger is righteous anger. Sometimes anger is against the... the, Sometimes anger is really just hatred for sin. Lots of times it has a righteous root. It's what we do with that anger that really becomes the problem. I'll be honest with you. We should be angrier about some things, more things than we are sometimes as Christians. It should really bother us that there's a sex trade in this city. That should make us angry. It should bother us that there's poverty like there is in this rich, greedy city. It should bother us that we don't have enough time to do mission like we should. This should bother us, friends. It's okay to be angry. The question is, what does Nehemiah do? Now, if he was me, or if I was him, here's what I would have punched him in the throat. Okay? Sorry, I've got a little bit of a temper problem. I'm just being honest with you. But Nehemiah doesn't do this. He gets angry and he throws the furniture, all his Ikea furniture, out onto the street. So his Lackstad and his Dickstad are all over 
the temple courts. I love this picture. And all stupid little joints on the Ikea furniture all broken and messed up. And in some ways, this is Nehemiah not just getting angry at sin, but making a proclamation to the people, this is how we treat sin. We don't bring it into the house of God. We take it. We throw it out. Just so you know, Tobiah, you don't have a place to live anymore because we're putting vegetables there. So get lost. You don't have anywhere to sleep anyways. I love this picture. I love this story. See, sometimes in the New Testament we hear, like, get rid of sin. But in the Old Testament we have a story. Throw it out. Get rid of it. Nehemiah is not done. See, the whole chapter 13, at the end of this chapter, he actually scalps somebody. So uh, visitors, you want, might want to return for that one. Uh, we might even have some mind for that. That'll be, that'll be a good time. But he keeps going. He goes out to the leaders and he confronts them. He says, what is this? I put you in charge of gathering the tithes. I put you in charge of putting, you know, grain into this thing. You, you not only stop doing this, you, you let someone live here that shouldn't be here. What's wrong with you guys? Told you this was seeker insensitive. I think that's one reason why I still so firmly believe in preaching. Sometimes we just need to sit there and hear from God. Get rid of your sin. Get it out. Deal with it. Kick it onto the street if you have to. This wouldn't work if I talked to you personally, would it? (laughs) You'd be a little creeped out by that. But somehow it works from the stage. And this is why I believe we still need to gather weekly to hear from God's Word. Because sometimes we need to be kicked in the gut with God's Word. Not so that we can feel just bad about ourselves, but so that we can get on with the mission. So that we can deal rightly and properly with what we're supposed to deal with. Because I, for one, would rarely do it if someone didn't scream it at me. I need it just as much as you do. Sometimes I literally feel like just whoever you are up there, you keep preaching and I will go down and sit there and I need to get yelled at like this too. I'm not isolating myself from this, friends. But I am saying there's something in this text that makes me want to grind my teeth and say, friends, this is serious business. We're not in a club here at Urban Grace. We're not trying to build a young, cool, hipster church, although honestly, I secretly kind of want that. We are here to do war against sin and Satan. And he will do everything he can to take us down. I could not figure out for the life of me, why did I get so sick this weekend? I couldn't move on Friday. I said, oh, oh, Trev, you just look terrible. I said, well, I feel worse. Saturday, I was like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I I had a near sleepless night last night. 
It was the strangest thing ever. And I was walking over here in the rain this morning going, no one's going to come to this. It's raining. No one's going to get out and come and hear this. And then Jesus was like, are you really surprised that on the one day you're just going to go after sin? You had one of the worst physical, emotional weekends you've had in months. I was like, oh, of course. Of course Satan doesn't want me to do it today. Of course he wanted a video. Because Satan doesn't like it when we throw his furniture out on the street. He doesn't like it when we look sin in the eye and say, you have no power over me. He doesn't like it when we rear up and are ready to kick the serpent in the mouth and say, you don't have a place here. He hates that. Let me just remind you, this passage is about a war. This is 12 years later. And the people had been given a good start, but they had not finished through. And so what can we learn? I think we can learn a lot. I think we can learn a lot. I'm going to break into it. I literally don't have a watch or a timing method. So somebody, Steve, can you wave when I start getting out of control up here? Okay. Buckle up. First thing I think we learn is Scripture goes first. I've talked about this. Scripture goes first. Now, even in the text, it's like metaphorically, you can look at it like Scripture is leading us. Did you know that, that God does not say it's, it's a book filled with words? He actually said it is a living and active word. Did you know that God equates himself with his word? Did you know that when... He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who was the incarnation of God. He says in John, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He equated Himself with the Word and said, this is a living and active Word that is so sharp that it can cut you right through your bones. Do you know how sharp of a knife you have to have to do that? Like, I work construction, okay? There are some hard objects that you need to demo. And a sawzall usually can get them all. But it would take a lot to slice right through bone. And I love that image. And some of us already have just felt the Holy Spirit go, zing, something's going on. There's something about it. It's a living and active word. Scripture goes First, it seems like we have to say this so often. I bet we wouldn't have to say it if we obeyed it more. You ever notice in Scripture, it's like, these themes are so repetitive. They keep coming up over and over again. I love what someone said. I watched a guy uh, on a a video lately. He was talking about a a little bit Bible Bible study, and they were gathering in their Bible study, and they're like, "Uh, can we move on to something new? And he said, no. No, we can't move on to something new. You're, you're not obeying the last thing we learned. I'm not going to give you something new to disobey until we get the first thing right. Why would I give you more things to disobey? Now, you can take that to extreme, but I think what he's trying to say is when we get good, when we get used to having Scripture being so 
important going so forward, becoming so real to us. I think we'll stop, have to stop talking about it, but I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon. Someone used to say to Martin Luther, why do you keep preaching the gospel? And he says, because you keep disbelieving it. He says, I will beat you with the gospel until you start believing it. Some ways, that's what I try to do every week. I try to beat you with the gospel until you get it. So far, you've got a lot of work to do. So do I. So I'm going to keep going with that. But I never do that outside of Scripture, friends. Never. I don't have any authority outside of Scripture to do that. God does not release authority to people to say, you tell them whatever you want to tell them. He never does that. Ever. You cannot find that in Scripture example. You cannot find that in real example where God says, well, you tell people whatever you want to tell them. Never says that. He says, you tell them what I already have been telling them for centuries. And that's why it's so powerful. And you see them, they open up the Scripture. And friends, if we're going to do battle with sin, we're going to have to open up Scripture. Scripture is going to reveal some hard things about your life. It's going to reveal some places in your life that are deficient in your obedience. It's going to reveal some places in your life where you're just not taking God seriously at all. It's going to do that. If you take a serious look at Scripture, if you give it an opportunity to do that, God's going to open up your eyes and, and you're going to see, i got some things to work on. I, got, I need some help here. I'm in trouble if I don't have a Savior. Yeah, that's the point of Scripture, by the way. The point of Scripture is Jesus. The point of Scripture is basically, after you were to go, I am so thankful for Jesus. Because if I didn't have a Savior like Him, I would have no hope. This would be a big list of, of a lot of don'ts. And you know what? There's many of you that still view Scripture like this. I know personally some people who I really believe the reason why they don't want to give Christianity a chance is they don't want to have don'ts thrown their way. They like their don'ts. They like doing the don'ts. And I do, and you do too. Truth is, why do we sin? Because we want to, that's why. Because we want to. We don't want to believe God. That's the truth of it. But we'll never even understand and comprehend what God is doing if we don't know what He has said to us about why. He won't always answer why, by the way. Sometimes he just says, like Matt was saying last week, just believe me for now, I'll show you later. That's what I have to say to my children at times. You know, I've got a four-year-old. She's like, are we there yet? No. Well, how do I know when we're there? Just watch your movie. (laughs) I'll tell you when we're there. Just believe me, please, for now. There's no way I can explain it to you that you would understand. You know, God didn't have to reveal as much as he did, but he revealed a massive amount of stories for us. A massive amount of information about who he was so we could comprehend how he works. Scripture goes first. Second thing I think we learned from the text, perseverance is really important. Uh, We don't talk a lot about perseverance. I think that's the one thing that would uh, probably define our culture today is we don't persevere very well at all. You notice that about yourself? 
you notice how good of a starter you are compared to how good of a finisher you are? Which one are you better at, generally? We're generally pretty good starters. Especially in a city like Calgary, where entrepreneurialism, starting things, is actually really warmly welcomed. Very few people have awards for businesses that have been around for a hundred years. That's not flashy. That's not exciting. What's exciting is a is a company that went from you know zero to sixty right away. But perhaps one of the most important I would say it is it's really the important thing at the end of the day. Get it? At the end of the day? I mean, Jesus, the way Jesus describes even the Christian life is he does, he does not look at your life and go, well, how did you start? Because I'm judging your life on how you started. He doesn't do that. How does he judge your life? How does the Bible say that he judges your life? How did you end? How did you end? You know, what's, what's the definition of a good marriage? Is the definition of a good marriage someone who starts at 90 miles an hour or someone who finishes strong at 90? Who are you really impressed with? The 19-year-old, 18-year-olds who get married and are in love or the people who are 90 years old walking hand in hand, still loving one another? What's more impressive? Do not forget, friends, Perseverance is a major key to your spiritual life. This is big for us because we are hitting a point where we can start kind of coasting in what we're doing. The pressure is off a little bit. We have people actually coming to our church. Our pastors full-time, we're doing things. We have real music. We're not listening to an iPod during communion anymore. And I think already we can get into this mindset of like, okay, okay. But you know what? Jesus, I do not believe, will judge us on how we started. He will judge us on how we finish. And friends, are we going to finish like Nehemiah? Are we going to see clearly like he did? Twelve years later, he comes back and he's got the same razor-sharp vision for the city of God. Twelve years later. Ten of those likely, somewhere in there, ten, maybe even more, of those years were spent back in his country. And he comes back and the first thing he does is, that's wrong. You guys are disobedient here. That furniture's got to go. That guy's got to go. You've got to start collecting tithes. I'll talk with you later. It's perseverance. Ecclesiastes 7.8, it says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. I love that. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Good little proverb, little preview for the kind of stuff that you'll hear in Proverbs. Although it's Ecclesiastes, same writer, different book. But I think we've got to think through this, like the sin of not persevering. The sin of not persevering. Where in your life is Jesus said, you just quit? Oh, man. If I had a nickel for every time, I was like, I am going to read through my Bible in a week. How many have done, like, you're like, I'm going to read my Bible every day. And like the next day, you're like, well, not every day. 
I am going to email that person every hour. Not on weekends, though. And slowly it just fades away. And this is your natural, just be prepared for this, this is where your life will go. You drift away from things, not towards things like this. You do not drift toward perseverance. You have to set your face toward perseverance. And I'm warning you, it is a battle. It is a battle. You do not naturally wake up one day and find yourself disciplined. You do not wake up one day and go, I have no idea how I persevered. Because every day you persevered, that's how you got there. I still say, you know, some people ask, you know, how do you, what was your kind of method and thinking and strategy for planting this church? And I was, I've kind of boiled it down to, I just didn't quit. Yet. That's all I got right now. I just didn't quit. I I think that's so much a part of our Christian life, not quitting. It's a, a, a theme that seems to keep coming up in Nehemiah. And lastly, Am I getting close here, Pilsner? Ten. Sin was dealt with. Sin was dealt with. What's interesting is that uh, Nehemiah could have tried to negotiate with Tobiah. This is really the problem with the way the people had been treating sin. He was really angry. He did not say, can I, can I sit down? Can I go for uh, coffee with you guys and uh, just talk about what you're doing? He's like, no, um, I'm going to revoke your keys to the temple and uh, don't expect to have a place to live by the end of the day. He deals with sin. Looks it straight in the eye and says, this has got to change. I love this because it is a vivid picture of what I think we have to do with our sin. Have you ever negotiated with sin? Then you're laughing. You tried negotiating. How does it go? How's that going for you and me? Negotiating with sin doesn't work. It never works. We think it works. It doesn't work. Oftentimes in the past, when I've negotiated with sin, it's like, yes, I've totally got to deal with this, but I'll deal with this next week. Or I'll deal with this at a later date. And it doesn't go well for me. It's a lot that happens in between. And I think we need to get into our heads that this is... Sin is an all-out war. The battle against sin is an all-out war. When you become a Christian, when Jesus Christ saves you, you turn from being a a child of darkness who works for the prince of darkness into a child of the Son of God who works for light. That's what happens. They also call it being born again. They also call it regeneration, new birth, because it's so radical, it's so different, that that's really the only description for it. To get there, you simply say, yes, Jesus, I believe that what you did matters. I believe that you are God. I believe that you were man. I believe that you did not sin. I believe that you died for me. I believe that through faith. I know, it seems like a scandal, doesn't it? What? I get that for just believing? Yes, that's what Jesus says. Through faith, you receive these things. It is a gift from God. You can't get this through your works. But, 
that does not mean you are eliminated from a battle. In other words, what Jesus says is, I am going to change you. You are on the winning side. You win in the end, but there's a war to be fought still. I think sometimes we got in our heads that once we become a Christian, the war is over. No, it's not. The war is still to be fought. It is won by Jesus in the end. You do have success, but you are a soldier in a great battle. And I don't think we take that seriously enough sometimes. Recently, like two days ago, when I was sick, I watched an older movie from the mid-90s, and one of the characters had a remarkable quote. He said, the devil's greatest trick, trick was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I would add to that great quote and say, one of the devil's greatest tricks as well was convincing us that sin isn't really that bad and doesn't really need to be dealt with and doesn't need to be battled. Friends, we must kill sin. We cannot maim it. We cannot partition it off in our lives. We cannot wait and deal with it another day, we must kill it. Do you know what killing means? Killing means to take the life out of. Maiming means to hurt for a while. Some of us maim sin. We're like, I'll just fend it off a little bit. I'll just, you know, get, get, get away, get away, get away, get away. I think we need to kill sin. We must kill sin. John Owen, who's written a very, very thick book on this whole issue, says this. Do you mortify? That means to kill. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the truth. It's a good word. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, there's no in-between. There's no neutral ground here. You're either working for the prince of light, or you're working for the prince of darkness. Don't kid yourself. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, be sure to get an interest in Christ John Owen says, if you intend to mortify any sin without it, it will never get done. You can't do it without Jesus, he says. You cannot, you cannot kill this, this love of, of, of anything if you don't find a greater love in Jesus. If you don't believe Jesus is the real deal, if you don't believe he's the real Savior, you can't kill sin the same way. You can try. It's called sin management. won't work. And I think here's what I'm I'm finding too is as I'm going especially through marriage counseling with, with couples these days and we're dealing with Genesis 1 to 3 I'll just come out and say it and then you can decide for yourselves 
I think there's a particular call on men to battle sin here. I know some of you don't like hearing that. I'm reading another book by Eric Mason that said, one of, one of the true biblical marks of manhood is the courage to face sin head on for the sake of others. Men. We are doing a terrible job of this. Our city is filled with men who have given their lives over to sin. They've given up. There are men sitting beside you that have given up. Men, let's not give up. Our city is at stake. The power of the Holy Spirit in our church is at stake. I'm sick and tired of this city seeing churches go down because men can't keep their pants on, men can't keep their wallets closed, men can't lead their wives or their children in this battle. We're not asking for perfection here, men. We're asking for a seriousness to look sin in the eye and to kick its teeth in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I feel it right in my spirit. There are tons of women in here right now that are saying, yes, please, give us some examples of what this means to battle sin. How do we do this? Let's first of all remember how much sin grieves God, men and women. Let's remember that this, although Jesus has dealt with sin, let's remember it hurts him. Have we forgotten this in our sin? Some of you have friends that hurt each other and you don't like those people. You don't want to hang out with them. Do any of you have a friend who continually hurts her other friend? Do any of you have a friend who continually um, mooches off another friend and drains them and hurts them? Do you want to be around that person? No, that hurts you. Do not forget, friends, that although Jesus has dealt with sin on the cross and he doesn't hold it over you, it grieves his heart. I have children, and this is how I know this now. Because when they disobey, I say, Dinah, Eve, do you understand how much this hurts your mom and dad? Yes, I forgive you. But I say, do you really want our relationship to consist of me forgiving you and you asking for forgiveness? Do you realize there won't be the same closeness there? There won't be the same intimacy. There won't be the same trust. There won't be the same respect. Because Jesus did not die on the cross to put you in a category. He died on the cross to put you in a relationship. Not just an area. 
where you just battle sin by yourself. He said, I want to be with you. But if I spend all my time, if all you think of me as someone who just forgives your sin and you just sin whenever you want and it has no effect, you're so wrong with that. I think I have been guilty of being scared to preach about the seriousness of sin because I want you to hear about the grace of God. And I said to my friend Tom this morning when preaching, pre-preaching this sermon to him, I said, it's funny, the Bible never makes excuses for this. The biblical writers never hold back from this. They never say, oh, I better not say it that way or you might get confused. They say, If you keep sinning, who knows where you'll end up? (laughs) That's what the book of Hebrews actually says to these people. You should be grown up now. You should be teachers of this stuff. Instead, you're still battling this like it's day one in the gospel. Grow up. Get real. Your spiritual life is a joke. All it consists of you just asking forgiveness. There's no depth to it. I think part of that, friends, is because we do not get that this grieves a holy God. This hurts Him. I don't get that, I know. Point number one is for me. Two, remember how dangerous and subtle sin is. This is a 12-year process, friends. Didn't happen overnight. Eventually, Tobiah's like, well, I don't have a place to live. Well, okay, well, you can, like, the tithes weren't that big this year. Maybe we can put you in one of these little storehouses next year, next month, six months. It's like, you know, can I get you guys to move some of these corn on the cob that you stored here, some of this wheat that you're storing here so I can have a bigger furnace? The next thing you know, this guy's living here full time. He's operating out of the temple. I can guarantee you that did not happen in one chance that happened over time if you want to battle sin friends you've got to look very carefully at all areas of your life you can't just say well i'll i'll deal with um coveting here this month and then uh two months from now i'll deal with my greed and then maybe six months from now because i don't really want to i'll deal with my lust and then Hopefully, if that goes well, then maybe I'll deal with my pride. Friends, it doesn't work that way. It's subtle. Sin gets in everywhere. It's like water. You ever try to keep water out of something? You have to really go through every little bit. I was in construction for a while. You have to seal everything off. You have to take attention to every little detail. Do not neglect how, remember how dangerous and subtle sin is. Thirdly, remember that sin is not just what you do, it's also what you don't do. Some of us only think about the stuff we do against God. So God says to do this, we, we, uh, God says don't do this, so we, we do it anyways. But there are also some things that God says to do, and we don't do them. And we wonder why there's no spiritual vitality. It's just as sinful to be greedy as it is to look at porn, friends. It's just as sinful to put your identity in your clothes as it is to murder. 
I know that's crazy for you to imagine, but it's true. Let God decide what matters. He says sin is sin. If you want some lists of how deep sin is, go to the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting that in lists of sin in the Scriptures, often God will, will literally put adultery right next to gossip. What? I mean, seriously, if there was a, like a, a, a gossip graph on how much gossip goes on in our church, I bet you'd be pretty high. Not because you're especially sinful, but probably because we just don't think of it as really that bad. Our murder graph would be low, I'm pretty sure. I'm hoping. Maybe not. I'm hoping our adultery, our stealing graph is pretty low, but friends, God doesn't say, well, one's worse than the other. I think there's some worse consequences than others, but he never says, well, one will put you into hell and one won't. He says, all have sinned and all, all have sinned. And all sin falls short of the glory of God. And I think sometimes we don't realize that what we don't do is just as damaging in our spiritual lives as what we are doing against God. Fourthly, remember that sin cannot be battled alone. Big lie, isn't it? Big lie. Most of the sins we're really embarrassed about, we feel like, well, I'll do this by myself. And we find like there's, there's nothing, there's no power there. That's not what Jesus says. The Bible actually says that there's healing in confession. Listen to what James 5.16 says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Listen to this. That you may be healed. What? Good word. That is a good word. Confess so that you can get healing. You see the connection there? We don't really get the kind of healing sometimes because we don't confess to one another. We just try to battle it by ourselves and we feel this burden by ourselves and we just spend all this energy and we just can't do it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we we start with Citigroup. Now, you can't battle every sin in Citigroup because some sins are more private than others. And so we got some freedom to like branch out, especially men and women. We don't want you battling sin together in tight groups, all the same kinds of sin. For one, we won't understand each other very well. We really are made differently. Some's not really appropriate to battle in mixed company. And I highly, highly discourage it. But if you've got some habitual sin in your life, you've got to do it in community. That's why you have no victory over it. Because you're trying to do it alone. I can almost guarantee that. You know how I know? Because I know. Because I can't battle it alone. For the guys, we're starting these things. Groups of minimum or, or, or minimum three, no more than four. We're calling them fight clubs, partially because it's cool. 
but a lot because it really gives this idea we're not just going to get into a group and just say, yeah, I sinned this week and throw a, a toonie in the jar and, you know, say that's my accountability. We're going to say we're going to look this in the face. We're going to track these sins down. We're going to call them out. And we're going to tell them to get lost. And we're going to turn and we're going to say, isn't Jesus better than this? And we're going to do this relentlessly. And part of the reason why I'm so tired this week is because I had two or three men in particular saying, I'm battling stuff by myself and I feel helpless and I need help. I I don't have any place to put them. Because they don't know who to trust yet. And so men, we've got to have the courage to look at other men and say, look, I'm struggling with porn. I've got to get in one of these fight clubs so I can look this head on. Ladies, I would encourage you to do this just as much. I don't think your battle is any different. There are ladies dealing with porn too, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. And you need to get in fight clubs too and look that in the face and say, my identity is not in those things. My identity is in Jesus Christ. Preach that to me, girls. Preach that to me, men. This is why I say, you gotta remi- you got to remember, you're in a battle. You are not in this little club called church. We're not here to play church. We're here to proclaim the gospel in this city. I know we've won the war, but we'll lose this battle if we don't have a church that's willing to look sin in the face and throw its Ikea furniture into the street. And you can't do that by yourself. Don't try. It's not even worth it. Even David, in Psalm 32, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's like, when I kept it in, I died. When I kept it in, I wasted away. When I kept it in, I was in agony. That's exactly how sin works. And one of the big temptations that Satan will bring your way is, he will say, no, no, you can battle this by yourself. Just get away for a bit. That's all you need. Resist that. Resist that. Fifth, remember that sin must be dealt with as swiftly as possible. I think I've gone over this. Don't pretend that this can just be something that you can casually deal with. Get serious about it. Jesus, when he's reminding his friends about even coveting, here's what he says. He says, if your, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter into hell with one eye than it is with two eyes and be dead on the inside. What, Jesus? Like, carve out my eyeball? You're saying that's good? He says, this is what Jesus is saying. Do what it takes to get rid of it. If it actually helped, yes, gouge it out. Be like, are you saying get rid of my TV? If it would help you, Jesus would say, it is actually better to enter heaven with no TV than it is to enter hell with a 42-inch plasma. It is better. So yes, 
if that actually helps. Am I saying throw away your TVs? No, if you're going to throw it away, we could use an extra one. But I'm saying, get that serious about it. Find out in your life where it is that you're getting tripped up habitually by this sin and get, be willing to get rid of that if that is required. Get help. Get covenant eyes. Have someone monitor your spending. Have someone go through your wardrobe. Have someone look at how much money you spend on makeup. I'm serious. I'm not joking about this. Do what it takes. It is actually better. It will be better in heaven, Jesus says, to see one-eyed, one-legged people than it is to see people in hell that have a full body. I think Jesus meant it. Lastly, I close with this. I know I'm over a bit, those. Remember that sin has ultimately been dealt with by Jesus. Do not forget this. There is hope. Some of you feel so bad about yourself right now. And in some ways, I can't help that. It's impossible to talk about the heinousness of sin without something inside of us going, I've got some stuff to deal with. But do not leave here thinking that no matter what sin you have committed thus far, no matter how deeply entrenched you are in sin, this is the beautiful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As dirty as you might feel right now, the truth of the gospel is, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, in your place, he does not see the dirty, rotten sinner that sits here. He sees a white, clothed, righteous person. His own righteousness. He sees himself. Is that not miraculous, friends? Like, that, that, that should just eliminate all despair right now. He does not see your guilt. He sees himself, but he says, there are places that I need more holiness in, and I want to bring more holiness. And the fact that you're even drawn to this right now is evidence that his spirit is alive and working in your life. If he wasn't, you wouldn't even be interested in hearing what I had to say this morning. And so as we come to the table, I know Tom or or Steve said, it's heavy. I get that. And in some ways, I wish there was another way, but there is no other way, friends. And this is the darkness of sin. And then we lay the beautiful diamond of Jesus Christ against this darkness. And we say, do you know how much God hated sin? He had to kill somebody for it. That's how much he hated sin. Do you know how much God loves you? He killed himself for you. Are you hearing me? God hates your sin so much, he needed to kill somebody over it. He loves you so much, he killed his own son in your place. That is the gospel, friends. And so as we close, all there is to do is simply say, Jesus, thank you. Some of you, as you come, you will simply have to be repenting and writing things down. Repentance, I would say, regularly involves a plan. 
Some of you are not done at this service, obviously. You've got work to do. You've got time you've got to spend. I get that there's scheduling issues, friends. Don't wait. Don't think that you can just maybe skirt this off until sometime later. Deal with it swiftly. But as you come, do not forget the good news of the gospel. This cup symbolizes the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He bled out for you. His broken body was broken within an inch of his life for you. He cares about you. He loves you. He wants to see sin dealt with. He's given you the tools to do it. He's given himself to relieve all guilt. Friends, what are you waiting for? Come and partake and remember.